So as we begin reading in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, it says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men! For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As we look throughout the Bible, God's leaders and teachers are held in a high and respectable position. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul would tell Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And in Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In Ephesians chapter 4, the apostles and, and teachers and pastors are said to be a gift of God to the church. and So God holds them in high esteem. But 
you know, there's not much more scathing ridicule throughout the Bible than the opposite of that, than those who set themselves up to be teachers who are falsely so-called. We look back into the Old Testament in Jeremiah's day. He says in chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, he says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their own discretion, or some translations use the word authority. So in other words, the priests are teaching from their own authority, their own ideas, their own words, their own mindset. And he says, my people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? But you know, there's a real innate problem in that. What happens when the priests, when the prophets, when the, the apostles, when the, when the pastors, what happens when they teach their own ideas is that we end up following society because those people are just men and they're impacted by the events and the, and the culture that's around them. And so the church just ends up following society, following culture, just a, well, a step behind it. But rather, what God intended for that to be is for that to lead society. That the churches get taught the truth. That God's direction, that God's word would be upheld within the churches. Not just the thoughts and ideas of our teachers and of our pastors, but God's word would have the preeminence. God's authority would lead the church. And when that happens, you know what God can do is He can use that church to shape the culture rather than the culture shaping the church. And that's why when you get into like Second Peter, when he talks about false teachers, he says these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. He speaks very boldly and bluntly. And I would have given more examples, except we just flashed up a whole bunch of examples of that last week. And the Bible has no good to say about false teaching. And the rebuke of false teachers, false prophets, false apostles is scathing in the Bible. But you know what? In all of the Bible, you will probably not find a passage as scathing as the words right out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus as He gives it to us here. And what we're considering this morning as we look at this is exactly what the passage has, and it's very easy to outline. Jesus outlines it for Him Himself. There's seven woes. In this very scathing ridicule that Jesus brings against the religious leaders of the day, there's a few words that he repeated. One of the words that he repeated was that word woe. He uses it seven different times in the passages. And then another word that comes up also seven times is hypocrites or hypocrisy. Another word that comes up repeatedly, it comes up five times, is the word blind. You'll call them blind Pharisees, blind men, blind fools. So as Jesus is doing this, he's pronouncing woe. It's a term of judgment that he's proclaiming on them. And what is involved in this judgment? The word itself is kind of an interesting word. It's uh, onomatopoeia. The word is formed because it sounds like something that it's trying to communicate, trying to convey. Anybody think of an example? Squeak. <laughs> That's a good one. Squeak is good. Yep. Uh, meow. So when a word is formed, a word comes to represent something, but it's kind of formed by the sound that it kind of makes. This is the word ouya in the Greek language, and it just conveyed, it was just kind of a noise, a sound that was made to express a deep anger, a deep pain, or both of those things together. Now, what is this judgment or this woe that he's pronouncing upon them? What does it entail? Well, one thing that we can see that's repeated through the passage is that it obviously entails the concept of hell, that these people had hell 
that they would pay for their judgment uh, upon themselves because of their hypocrisy and their blindness. Jesus told them at the beginning, he says, you go out and make a proselyte, and a proselyte is a follower. In other words, it's a convert that you win over to your, your faith or your religion. He says, and when you've made a proselyte, they're twice, they become twice as much a child of hell as you yourself are. So that Jesus makes a point that they're not winning people over to heaven, they're winning people over to hell. And later in the passage, Jesus tells them, how are you going to, how will you not go to hell? How are you going to stay out of hell? Now, obviously, it's not his desire for that to happen, because when we get to the end, he will like, cry out over Jerusalem and say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, you who kill the prophets, he says, how many times would I have gathered you under like a, like a hen does with her chicks under her wings. How many times would I have gathered you in? But you were not willing. He is our only hope of salvation. So to reject that, then that puts all the justice of God and the wrath of God upon them, which is what they enjoyed foisting upon other people. And so as we look at the passage there, it says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. That's a pretty dramatic picture that he gives there. It's kind of the idea of you going up to a gate and them slamming that door in your face. So the Pharisees are facing this judgment before God. Why? Because of their influence on other people. Jesus kind of gives us a picture of these people coming right up to the door of the kingdom of heaven and wham, the Pharisees slam the door on them. We see an example of it. We factor out several of them throughout the New Testament, but the one that comes to my mind is found in John chapter 7. It says, The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? Then the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. These guys, these officers went to arrest Jesus, and when they heard Jesus speak, they just couldn't do it. And when they get back, the Pharisees say, well, why didn't you bring him? They said, I, I never heard anybody. Nobody's ever spoke like this guy. You see what's happening is they're kind of starting to get won over. They're, they're starting to think about who he is. There are many places, places in the Gospels where the crowds are saying, do the religious leaders know this is the guy? When the Messiah comes, is he going to do more miracles than these? And where people are starting to go toward Christ... And what happens? The Pharisees start trying to trip him up. They start trying to ask him questions. They start putting pressure on the people not to believe, like the example here where he says, look, if any of us believed on him, all you people that you don't know your Bibles, you don't know the law, that's why you're ignorant. That's why you believe in him. And so they're trying to keep people from believing in Jesus. In fact, the whole plot to get Jesus hung on the cross was just a way to get rid of him, get him out so that people will quit believing on him. And so they were adamantly doing exactly what Jesus told them. They're keeping people out of heaven, and they're sending people to hell. We need to be careful. None of us are islands to ourselves. We all have an influence, an impact on other people. And because of that influence, we're accountable. The greater our influence, the greater our accountability. In fact, in James chapter 3 and verse 1, his, his advice was, not many of you should become teachers. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I think in our day more than any other day, because there are so many avenues to put thoughts and ideas out in front of other people. Any influence, any impact that we have on other people, we get held accountable for. You know, there's been times where I've seen comments, or even sometimes they didn't make the comment themselves, they just grab it from somebody else and put it up there on Facebook. 
and they put these comments out there. And there's sometimes where people put comments out there about maybe a different issue and the Bible. And I read some of those comments and I think, boy, I don't think this person's ever read the Bible. And then I think, you know what, how responsible are they? They've set themselves up really as a teacher, made some comment about the Bible to make it look like the Bible teaches exactly the opposite of what it does teach. And they've put that out there toward other people, encouraging other people to think the same way. How many people have they impacted? Because for every person they've they've impacted, for every person that they've influenced, they'll be held accountable. We need to be careful. A lot of the tools that we have for communication today, you're not right in front of somebody. You're not looking them in the eye. And so it's easy to be bold and it's easy to throw out ideas quickly, much more quickly than we can get people to learn them by bringing them in here. But you know what? There's such a there's such a lack of accountability with that system. But you know what? There really isn't. The accountability we just don't recognize is happening right now. But God will hold people accountable. He holds us accountable for our influence upon other people. Let's look at the third woe. In the third woe, we're going to see two different issues evolve with this woe. The first issue is a matter of integrity. Because Jesus goes on to say, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple... He is bound by his oath, and then he does the same thing with the altar. He says if anybody swears by the altar, it's nothing. If anybody swears by the gift that's on the altar, well, then that's got to be upheld. But what is he doing? It's an issue of integrity, first off, because what they're doing is they're making promises. They're making oaths. They're saying, I do this. I swear I'm going to do this based on... And then they, they grab something greater than themselves to say, look, I'm going to follow through. I swear by the temple, I'll be there. I'm going to do this, or I'm going to pay this, or whatever the issue is at hand. He said, but you know what you've done? He says, you've, you've made yourselves loopholes. So you can say, I swear by the temple, and then you don't do it. You don't, you don't keep your word. You don't follow through. And then later on, you say, well, I can't be held liable because I didn't swear by the gold that's in the temple. I only swore by the temple, and that's a lesser oath. It does, I'm not really liable for that. And he's saying, you're making these, all these legal loopholes to get you out of being honest, to get you out of being a person that has to have integrity. And so integrity was the first issue. But the second issue was in their perspective. They had everything backwards. They had it upside down. Look at the things that they put more value on. On the one hand, they have the temple and the altar. On the other hand, they have the gold of the temple and the gift on the altar. But think about that. In fact, that's what Jesus calls them to do. He says, what made the gold holy? What made it sacred? Was it not the fact that it's in the temple, which is where it represents the dwelling place of God? And so his final conclusion is, if you swear by the temple, you're swearing by everything that's in the temple, including the one that lives there, who's God. And he said, the, the altar, the altar is nothing? Really? That thing where you bring your gift, you bring your sacrifice, you bring that to God? The altar itself is nothing, but the gift is everything? He said, what makes that gift sacred? Was it not the altar? Was it not bringing it to God that made it sacred? He said, you guys have got it completely backwards, completely upside down. In fact, it's interesting to note, remember I told you that he uses the word blind five times in this passage? Three of them are in this woe right here. He's saying, you are blind. You are blind men. You're blind Pharisees. You're blind fools. I think he calls them those three things within those three words in this passage. Saying your perspective is all backwards. What were the things that they valued? The gold and the gift, the things that were nothing for the temple and the altar. What are what is the temple and the altar? Do they not represent God in his dealing with us? What are the what's it, what is the gold 
and the gifts. Aren't those things that more represent what mankind brings to the table, what man can bring, the gift that they bring to the altar, the gold that they contributed to the, to the temple? And Jesus is saying, boy, you guys are, you guys are completely blind. He said, you, you've got your whole perspective is upside down. The fourth woe is that they were minoring on majors. As we look through the passage here, he starts talking about tithing. He says in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Tithe means a tenth. You give a tenth of your, of your income. That's a tithe. In fact, Israel had to pay not just one tithe, but they paid two different tithes, and then a third one that had to be paid every three years. If you add up all of their tithes that they paid, they actually paid about 23%. A year. Well, the Pharisees, they're kind of overboard with this. They're tithing things like mint and dill and cumin, which are what? They're, they're household spices. You actually didn't have to tithe your household spices. So they're going over, over and above to meet the requirements here. You had to tithe crops that were in the field that you raised and sold and, and those kinds of things as a profit, but not your household spices. But Jesus said, you know what? You guys are so focused on making sure you tithe the salt and pepper that's in the cupboard. He says, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And as we look at those, it says they're justice and mercy and faithfulness. You know, these people from what we read last week would put a great big burden on some little old widow's shoulders that she is is unable to bear and then go home and tithe the spices in their cabinet and feel godly about it. They would treat people unfairly. They'd treat people unmercifully. They enjoyed loading people down with heavy loads that they themselves wouldn't move with a finger as we looked at last week. But they would not deal with people justly, deal with people just in an honest integrity, deal mercifully. And I love those two words because there's, there's a balance between those two things, right? Because if you neglect punishment, go overboard on mercy, then there is a point where there's no justice. And if you go the other way, where it's all justice, then there's a point where there's no mercy. And I always, I always love thinking about those two concepts together because they come together perfectly in the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we see both of those things. We see the justice of God, God's righteous requirements, God's righteous penalty upon sin is met out in the cross in God's mercy is complete and full because we receive the mercy of God in the cross as Jesus carried out the justice of God in the cross. So Jesus took the penalty for our sins upon himself, which exercised God's justice. And through doing that, he gave mercy to us and the forgiveness of sins. And so we see both of those things come together perfectly in the cross. And that's why in chapter 1 of the book of Romans, it says God could be seen as both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Jesus is telling these people that they were neither. They were not fair in all their dealings. They were not just and equitable in the way they treated other people. And at the same time, they were not merciful either. They were both unjust and unmerciful. And then lastly, he lists also faithfulness. They're not faithful either. They couldn't be relied on. Well, how could they be relied on when they swear to you that they're going to do something by the temple itself and then not do it? The problem was they were taking major events in life and they were minoring on those things and they were taking minor events in life and blowing them up and majoring on those things. And Jesus says, you've got it all out of whack. You need to be more concerned about that heavy load you just put on that individual there than you are about what spices are in your cupboard. Fifth and sixth woes, I'd get it from the word hypocrisy there, I'd just say it's putting up a front. 
is focusing on the externals as we look through it. He gives two examples. He says one is a dish, a platter, or a plate, or a cup, or a bowl. And he said, you know what you Pharisees are like? He says, you've got the outside of the dish all clean and shiny, but the inside is corrupt. Which is more important? I mean, if I'm going to eat a bowl of cereal or a bowl of soup, and part of it has to be dirty, I'd rather the dirty part was on the outside. Because that's not, that's not the part that's touching my food. And then he gives another one. He says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. This was very familiar to the Israelites because every year as it got close to the time of Passover, they would start painting all their tombs. And all these tombs, they'd paint them all white. And the reason that they would paint them white, they'd whitewash them, is because when people came in, you don't want to be unclean for the ceremonies of the Passover. And if you touch something dead, you're ritualistically unclean. And you'd have to go through a cleansing process. So they painted all the tombs. They whitewashed all the tombs so they'd stand out so nobody would accidentally come in contact with something that would make them unclean. And Jesus said, you know what? That's exactly what you are. You guys are out there whitewashing all the tombs, which they would have been doing at this time because it's coming right up on the Passover. They probably just got done whitewashing all the tombs. Jesus said, you know what? That's exactly what you are. You look all shiny and bright and clean and white on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. He tells them how to fix it. He tells them, why don't you do this? Clean up the inside, and they'll both be good. We talked about it a little bit last week. Guard your character. Your reputation will take care of itself. If you focus on the outside, you can clean yourself up to look pretty good, but inside you can still be just as corrupt and sinful as you were before. But if you correct the inside, if you have your mind renewed by God's Word and have the inside of you change yourself from the inside, it always works its way out. Remember, Jesus pointed that out about people's speech. He says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's not about curbing our language. It's about curbing our heart. If you clean up your heart, that will flesh itself out in your life. So it's not just a matter of hiding those corrupt things from other people, which is what the whitewashing does, the cleaning the cup does. It's about changing those things on the inside, and then you got nothing to hide. That's the fix. So we need to make sure that we're not putting on a, just putting up a front. You know, that's what that word hypocrisy was from. The word hypocrisy was used of acting and actors, and it was used of a kind of a theatrical goodness that you would act out, that you would show in front of people. It was, it was putting up a front. Then lastly, we get to the seventh woe, and this one deals with opposition. And that brings them right to the point that, that, well, they're headed for the cross. They're trying to get rid of Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus tells them, he said, you know what? You guys have been on this big campaign, and apparently they had, they had been. They'd been going around their towns and communities, and, and they'd been honoring the graves of uh, prophets and stuff like that, of, of heroes of their faith. And so they've been making monuments, making statues. They're kind, of, they're kind of the opposite of us right now. In our country, you've got a few people who want to tear down all the monuments and statues. Well, they were building them. They were making their monuments and statues and cleaning up tombs and stuff like that of, of people that had been faithful to God in the past. But in doing that, they have a little bit of a problem because they recognize, oh yeah, our forefathers killed this prophet. Even as Jesus refers to Jerusalem as the, the town that kills, the city that kills the prophets. So then what did they do? Well, they made the monuments and they cleaned up the tombs and those things and they, and they had ceremonies where they would say, you know what, if we would have been there, if we would have been there, we would have never done this atrocity. 
Same thing we're seeing in our society today. All these people that are going over wanting to tear down a statue. If we had been there, we would have never had slavery. I don't know if you were born in it. I don't know if you'd have been any better yourself either. But you know, you know. But that's what they were doing. If we were, if we had been there, we would not have done what our forefathers did. And Jesus said, "You, in your own speech, you've condemned yourself." He said because of two two reasons. One is, you've just acknowledged these are our fathers. And the point Jesus is making is, the apple isn't falling very far from the tree. The forefathers persecuted the prophets. They put the prophets to death that God sent to them. And Jesus said, you know what? You're about to do the same thing with the, with the ones that I'm going to send to you, with the apostles, that they would, they would continue to prosecute and put to death the apostles. But not only that, even Jesus himself. He makes that statement in there. He says in verse 32, Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus just told them, you know what, you've acknowledged that it's your fathers that murdered the prophets. He's saying, now you're going to fill up their shoes. You're going to fill you're going to fill up. You're going to overflow the same thing that they did. You're going to do. In fact, they're going to take the Son of God Himself and put Him to death. Just as some of His parables that we just looked at taught them that they would do. You're going to take the Son of God Himself and put Him to death. So they would do the same thing that their forefathers did. After all the speeches that they made, after all the tombs that they dressed up and said, oh, we wouldn't have done that if we had been there. Jesus said, you're going to do it. You're in the middle of, you're in the process of doing the exact same thing. So just as their forefathers had opposed God, they were in the middle of their efforts to oppose God through opposing Jesus Christ. So we see God's, God's judgment, God's, Jesus' scathing rebuke of the religious leaders of His day. Why did He do it? What is it that, that required such harsh treatment? Well, part of it was their influence on other people. They weren't just running to hell themselves. They were taking people with them. Part of it is because of their, their, their lack of integrity in making oaths and swearing to things that they had no intention of completing and masking it to make themselves look good while they did it. Part of it is their perspective that they looked at the gift that you could bring to the altar is more important than the altar itself where you were redeemed before God. Part of it is because they were minoring on major things and majoring in minors. They had everything backwards. They were, they were more concerned about the spices in their cabinet than they were about the people that they affected on a daily basis. Part of it was because they were putting up a front. They were, they were fake. We hear a lot about fake news today. There are a lot of fake people. They're, they're putting up a front to make themselves look good and be corrupt all along. And you know what? All of this was done in their open. These are people that had a way of opposing God and looking good while they're doing it. And you know what? That's the same. We can do the same thing. If we're not careful, we can make ourselves look really, really good. 
but be corrupt on the inside. Jesus says, how many times would I have gathered you together where they wouldn't have that judgment of hell over them, though these seven woes over them? How many times would I have drawn you in like a, like a hen draws her chicks under her wings? But you weren't willing. That's what holds people back. It's not a lack of effort on God's part. It's, it's, it's us, our hardness of heart, that keeps us from, from becoming real before God and becoming transparent before God and becoming delivered by God.